Back up, please. Hello and welcome to the Point Blank Show. My name is Abhishek and today we have with us Tom Wainwright, tech and media editor at The Economist. He's just authored a fabulous cover story on Facebook that reflects two decades of the outfit's existence. Tom is also the author of Narconomics, how to run a drug cartel, which has some fascinating business lessons on what we could learn from the drug trade. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for doing this. Hi, Abhishek. Really good to see you. Thank you. And there is indeed a common element between the drug trade and uh, social media is that the customers are called users, aren't they, in both uh, of them? <laughs> that's true. And they're arguably addicts as well in both cases. Some people would use that phrase for both industries, yeah. <laughs> Yes. And I stumbled while while reading. I, I read your cover, loved it. And then I started reading some of the articles that were written in The Economist. And I stumbled uh, upon an article from 9th July 2004. And it's in your sister publication and your colleague Lane Green. He wrote this. He talks about mother of all social networks with 6 million registered users within a year with a valuation of 50 million. Today, this company has entered the language as both a noun she and I have Frenchsters, and as a verb, to Frenchster, to describe whiling away time on the site when you actually should be working. Now, 20 years on, Frenchster is barely... I don't think any of my our listeners will know what Frenchster is, uh, but know. Facebook has been around, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a completely different generation, isn't it? I, I was reminiscing, I was never on Friendster, but I joined a thing in the UK called Friends Reunited. And I, I think it was, I don't know if it ever really made it very far out of the UK, but it was, at the time, it was quite a popular, very, very early social network. And I remember joining that in about, I suppose, 2001 or something like that. Again, I, I don't think it even exists anymore. So things have changed, definitely. Uh, flashback to all those years ago. And what did uh, Facebook do right at the time that it eclipsed all of these other folks who were, or companies that were already there? Oh, good question. I mean, we're, we're going back now into what by internet standards is really ancient history, you know, <laughs> long before I was covering this. But I suppose, let's see, I mean... Facebook, it, it grew really out of American universities, didn't it? Initially, it was, I think you had to have a Harvard address to, to join it to start with. And then they opened it up to other colleges. Then they opened it up to, I forget if it was other universities world, in, in certain countries or worldwide. And then, then they just opened it to everybody. And I think in a way, the college environment probably is, is quite a good place for these things to spread. As the name implies, it was literally like a Facebook, which is in the UK, we don't really have them. But I think in the States, they have these things where it shows you, you know, who's who's in your university year. And it literally has a, a photo of everybody. So I suppose it, it played that role. I mean, there's a few things that it did differently. Things that now we, we just completely take for granted, like, you know, the news feed, which has become a completely standard thing. Facebook was one of the pioneers of that. And there were some social networks I mentioned I joined this thing called Friends Reunited and, and they had hit on the idea of a network where you could track people down and find out what they're doing. But it didn't really encourage updates in the same way. So you'd have a page with your name and maybe what you're what you're up to. But it was Facebook that had this thing where you were, you know, encouraged to do sort of daily status updates and post your pictures and all this kind of thing which feels incredibly obvious now, was was less obvious back then. People forget that it was quite a while before Twitter allowed you to post pictures on Twitter. It was just text for, you know, quite a while. So some of the things that we take for granted now are things that probably at the time Facebook was doing that was unusual. What really began to set Facebook apart was its advertising engine, which it just still, you know, remains like nothing else really in social media. Um, 
Meta is it's still smaller than Google in terms of um, the total size of its ad business, but it's in, in social media terms, it's just vastly bigger than anybody else. And it seems to have really not quite cornered the market, but, you know, taken a huge share of that market and figuring out what people what people like and, and serving them the right kind of ads. So I, I think it was a mixture of product features and, and then the ad business that they really, really got to grips with very effectively. And uh, if I remember the figures from your cover, you, there are some th- nearly 3 billion users of, of Facebook. Slightly more, yeah. Three, just over 3 billion. That's monthly use. Daily must be a bit slightly fewer. But uh, yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that, that's it's more than, I think, more than 60% of all internet users worldwide. Right. And when you consider that people under, is it 12, aren't even allowed to sign up, it's, it, it's mm. an amazing yeah. share of the number of people who are eligible. Yeah. And still remember when Facebook was out and in, yeah, back in 2005, around that time, we had cyber cafes where you had to right. connect to the internet by going to a place, you know, pay by the hour. And everywhere you had Orkut, which has since died. Uh, that's from Google. And right. you're right. I think Facebook uh, figured out that uh, I think it was Newsfeed at the time where anybody updates something, it shows up right there. So each morning you wake up, there's something new to look at instead of going having to go to different uh, profiles. And, and what did Mark Zuckerberg set out to achieve? You write about wanting to become a town square or so for for those who don't know anything about it so how did it start and today obviously things are quite different but what what was the so-called uh, vision uh, the the cliched question yeah no it's a it's a good question and i think it, it's an interesting question as well because i think actually it's something that's changed over the years you know it's I, i'm not sure that facebook did set out with the aim of becoming the kind of global town square which mark zuckerberg has, has more recently called it i mean zuckerberg famously had this first website called face mash where you had to judge which student was was hotter out of two you know so it, it began i think just as a kind of a fun thing and then i think it, it kind of evolved into this thing you know 10 years ago mark zuckerberg said that he wanted the news feed to be like a personalized newspaper for everybody in the world and so it became you know a big a big source of people getting not just updates about what their friends were doing but news about the whole world and it was around that time that this idea of it and other social networks being a kind of town square where the big debates of the day were thrashed out, whether that was things like, you know, the Arab Spring or, you know, the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter or, you know, that kind of thing. And that was a a big role of Facebook and other social networks. But then more recently, we've seen them, I think, try to tack away from that a bit. And it's very interesting to see Meta has launched this app recently called Threads, which is a bit like a, a kind of Twitter Twitter killer. And they very explicitly said they don't really want news on that. They, they've said they're, they're going to do nothing to encourage news and current affairs stuff. Meanwhile, on Facebook, they're saying that news makes up only 3% of the stuff that people see in their feeds. So that they've really turned away from that. And I think there's been a, a pretty strong pivot back towards entertainment content, which I think for Meta is it's less controversial. It's probably little bit easier to moderate than hard news and politics so the question of what what facebook is and what it wants to be i think it's changed over the years from being a kind of a fun thing for students to a kind of serious town square global newspaper to now i think back to something more like you know maybe what was its original aim to which was to be more about entertainment more about fun and a bit less about the politics and the controversy and the, the toxicity and all this stuff which has been so complicated for them 
I mean, the, the obvious answer is the real aim all along is to make money. But the, the question is, what's the best way of doing that? And I think the answer to that question has changed over the years. Also because people are changing the way they consume social media now. For example, in, in India, we've got uh, uh, everyone from those selling uh, vegetables, having uh, smartphones and also our security guards where, you know, if they don't have much to do during the day, they are scrolling through videos often. And these yeah. could be YouTube shorts. Uh, the younger lot looks at Instagram. Previously, it was more about, and you, you cover that in your story, about sharing. Even if a kid has fever, people would post it on Facebook. Now that is not happening as much. Uh, they are happy just to consume a video. Is that a big shift that, that these social media outfits are also seeing? Yeah, total change. I mean, it's it's interesting. You, you said, you know, people are using it to consume video. And I, I think... I think that's the word, really. I think that, you know, users of social media now are, are, are real consumers of it rather than participants in it or, or, you know, users of it. I mean, there are some interesting stats out there, surveys on what proportion of people document their lives online. And I think there was one survey in America that found that the share of people who who say that they enjoy documenting their life online has fallen from something like 40% to 28% in just the last three or four years. So quite a rapid change. And, you know, just anecdotally, I, I think anybody who uses social media has probably noticed that maybe 10 years ago, if you opened up something like Facebook, it was a feed of, you know, Tom Wainwright has got a new job or Abhishek has got engaged or, you know, this is what I had for breakfast or all this kind of stuff. And these days, if you open up the same app, you're you're more likely to see stuff that's from people that you don't necessarily know stuff that's from people that you perhaps even haven't have even chosen to follow. You know, I get videos of kind of influencer content and kind of semi-professionally made video of it's decided that I'm interested in extreme sports. So I get lots of stuff of, you know, people skiing down Mount Everest and, you know, that kind of thing. So very different. People are seeing a, a video feed that in many ways is more like television. It's just a kind of a consumer viewing experience rather than a networking experience. So you turn it on, you get a random feed of all kinds of video. And those kinds of personal interactions, comments, debates, back and forth, that stuff has dried up to a large extent on those networks. And I think it's moved onto other platforms like, you know, WhatsApp is an obvious example. Closed, small groups, private messaging platforms seems to be where those things are now taking place. Something similar happened to me. Suddenly on my feed, clinical psychologist from Canada, Jordan Peterson, started appearing. Right. Uh, the YouTube feels that I need therapy or something or, or I'm looking for some motivation. <laughs> and it's funny because today we see my uncles and family members are on Facebook, where average age could be, you know, 45 plus, which wasn't the case about 10 years ago. And I remember there was this feature, and I think it's still there on Facebook called Poke. If you went to the help manual uh, on what uh, it was, it, it said, if you uh, had to ask, you shouldn't be here. So that, that was a kind of jibe that you're too old for uh, Facebook. And now Facebook itself is too old for the folks that are now consuming content. It could be WhatsApp, Instagram and others then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's funny though, that Facebook, I think, is concerned that some advertisers don't like advertising there as much now because the, the age profile has become a bit old but I was speaking to one um, guy a political consultant in the states and he was saying actually for politicians that's still quite appealing because older voters are the ones most likely to vote so the, the growing rising age profile of Facebook users is not great from the point of view of many advertisers but from those political advertisers actually it's that they're one group that don't seem to mind that but you're right the 
average age there has gone up in a, in a big way. And it's become a, a place that I think young people see now as a, a way to communicate with their grandparents rather than to, you know, meet partners and that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And now that it's an election year for many countries, is there, and, and you just said that uh, it, it's, it's good for a company like Facebook, how do they look at this now and there's been such a lot of controversy over the last two elections and the interference from bots and Russians etc so how much of it has changed and uh, how does the organization look at it well they I mean I, I think this is one reason why they've made this sort of pivot towards entertainment which we, we talked about briefly earlier they've had understandably so much criticism over everything mm. from some people say that oh, it was Facebook that handed the election to Donald Trump or Facebook that caused Brexit or you know Facebook that led to ethnic violence in Myanmar, but all kinds of accusations, all of them with probably some degree of validity, if, even if some some of it probably is exaggerated. And I think that from the platform's point of view, this is not particularly appealing. They would much rather do without this. So I think that's one reason why they've tried to slightly move away from some of that political stuff. But it remains a very important platform for the politicians, both for trying to get their message across through organic reach, which means mm. just posting a message and hoping it goes viral, and also for paid reach by buying ads. But it's interesting that there are some early signs that it's slightly falling out of favour among politicians, at least in the States, when it comes to paid advertising. I, I spoke to some political ad specialists who forecast that in this election cycle, ad spending on Facebook is going to be lower than it was in the previous election cycle. And I was thinking, well, maybe it's a less competitive race or something like that, or maybe the primaries are less competitive than they were, and that's why. Mm. But I don't think that's the explanation, because the, the same people forecast that total ad spending in America this cycle will be quite a lot higher than it was in the previous cycle. So the fact that Facebook political ad spending is going to be lower in spite of a, an overall big increase in ad spending, mm. It is, you know, I think really quite significant. And I think it's, it's not totally clear what's going on, but I, I think probably the most likely explanation is, is just that as we've seen, advertising on social media has become somewhat less effective across the board, largely as a result of the anti-tracking privacy changes that Apple and others have been introducing. Um, and I think that for politicians in particular, this has had a bit of an impact because the kind of political ads that you see on Facebook tend to be fundraising ads. If you're a politician, you, there are broadly two kinds of, well, maybe three kinds of ads. You've got fundraising ads, you've got persuasion ads, you know, vote for this person because he or she's the best. And then you've got the kind of get out the vote ads on, you know, in the on the day or in, in the week of the, the campaign. It's not great for the get out the vote stuff because it's not going to be allowing any political ads in the 24 hours before the election or possibly the week before. I can't remember. And people still think that TV is best at the persuasion stuff. So social media really comes into its own in the fundraising side of things for politicians. And that's where it's particularly kind of in the past, at least, it's been particularly easy to see what the return on investment is because they're so good at tracking what people do after seeing the ad that they can say, OK, you spent, you know, $100 on advertising. We calculate that you probably made $150 in donations. So keep spending on the ads because you're still, you know, get, getting a positive ROI. It, getting that kind of feedback now is much harder than it used to be. And so it's it, people are, are kind of they have less information about how effective the ads are. The targeting is less good. So it seems likely that the ads are going to be somewhat less effective than they were. And so, you know, if, if you're placing ads on Facebook primarily with a view to 
getting donations, which is relatively measurable, then I think these anti-tracking changes have, have had quite a big impact. So that would be my main kind of guess as to what the explanation is. But it is interesting. First, I think first US electoral cycle that we've seen in which political advertising on Facebook is going to be lower than in the previous ad cycle. So kind of, you know, the end of an era in, in some ways uh, there. And it's only getting uh, difficult for social media outfits to mm. advertise, mm. is it? Or will they learn over time? For example, TikTok or YouTube shorts or even uh, stories or reels on, you know, start Instagram. Now, I don't see too many ads on video compared to what it would be on a news feed. Obviously, the YouTube free version any any other video the first 30 seconds you have to wait patiently for it to yeah. go so is it especially you said whatsapp where people are now wanting to have conversations with the people that in groups small groups which means yeah. there you can't really get an ad in unless facebook decides that we are going to do it and plus you can't read they're encrypted so it, it facebook Ooh. can't uh, necessarily know what abhishek is texting tom and then based on that they insert uh, abhishek needs therapy or tom wants yeah. some adventure <laughs> sports so that that can't happen i guess so is it getting difficult or they'll just find a way around it like they have all, always it's a good question so the small messaging group platforms like you know whatsapp and, and others remain very very under monetized so far you know very very little in the way of advertising whatsapp has, has just recently that meta has started monetizing it with um it's mostly kind of business to business products they, they've got this thing called is it click to message or something like that and it's it's aimed at businesses that that can use whatsapp as a kind of customer service tool and, and that kind of thing so it's not as, as you say you know you don't it's not like facebook where when you're scrolling through messages you see ads inserted among the messages and certainly platforms like say iMessage on the iPhone but there are no ads on that and I even though Apple is is getting into advertising in a big way I, I find it hard to imagine them ever inserting ads into your iMessage somehow it just doesn't. Telegram I think is it doesn't have ads so it's you're right that that's an area that at the moment is kind of more or less off limits for that kind of advertising and I, I find it hard to imagine that changing in a really radical way in future. The other platforms that the more kind of open networks, like you mentioned TikTok and others, those are certainly monetizing quite quickly now with advertising, not necessarily for political advertising. So TikTok still doesn't allow any political ads of any kind. That may change. I don't know. Although again, TikTok is so allergic to political controversy at the moment because it's you know, in danger of being banned in America. I think it's is it already banned in India. It's very, very controversial in lots of countries. And so you can see why they want to stay away from allowing political ads. So no political ads on TikTok, no ads of any kind on threads for now, although that I'm sure that will change. Uh, so it's harder in that sense for politicians. And I think the kind of bigger question as well is, you know, video advertising is, is just a slightly different thing from newsfeed advertising um it's harder to get people to click through having the kind of banner saying click here to start your free trial of the economist or you know donate to donald trump or whatever it might be they don't allow that in the same way or you have to put the link in bio or, or whatever so it's much more difficult to get people to click through in that sense as i was saying but advertisers seem to think that television is still more persuasive than social media advertising as social media comes to resemble television more closely I, I don't know if we'll see more in the way of persuasion style political ads on on social media possibly but it's just a, a different kind of format and it's you're right the, the the sheer number of ads that you see on video is is fewer as well I mean just because 
if you spend five minutes scrolling through the Facebook feed, I don't know how many ads you see, but it's it's a lot. Whereas if you watch five minutes of video, you, you know, by definition, you can't see more than half a dozen ads at most, probably a lot fewer than that. So, yeah, it is. It's a different medium which presents different questions. And I think for politicians in particular, lots for them to think about there, about how, how the, the tactics might need to change. And talking about change itself, Facebook now being a trillion dollar um, capitalization and users uh, take uh, success for granted given that you know a huge outfit and it connects the world so it, it continues to make money but in, in reality they've been quite good at either uh, cloning or emulating competition uh, if they can't buy them. I, I remember reading somewhere that the like button which is now synonymous with uh, uh, anything that is good online it wasn't really Facebook but uh, friend feed which Facebook bought later and then oh, really? I think huh. yeah then pe- people you may know that feature which basically uh, is credited to have turned the fortunes at the time was yeah. actually a feature that was introduced by LinkedIn first uh, right. and these guys ran with it. FriendFeed's uh, founder Brett Taylor became the CTO of Facebook later so they, right. it, it looks like a product team at Facebook uh, appears or maybe it could be Zuckerberg or whoever knows what is hot and is it like a trial and error or or they because they have the skill uh, they can you know try a few things and hopefully some of them stick but it's not really on autopilot they, they also have had to work towards figuring out how people are changing the consumers and then you know plug new things in their pipeline yeah i mean i you're absolutely right they're famously good at copying everything <laughs> I, I didn't know that even the like button was was copied from someone else that's a, that's a good one but yeah that you know um snapchat stories which was was then borrowed by you know instagram and facebook and more recently you know they've got this product called reels which is a, a fairly obvious copy of tiktok so they, they've got a long history of this and they get criticized for it but in a way it's very impressive that they have managed to stay on top for this long i mean 20 years old and still i forget when they became the biggest social network but it was you know relatively early on in facebook's history and still to be in that position now age 20 is is pretty pretty impressive and they've done it through constant evolution and it's interesting to see now what zuckerberg is doing with the metaverse you know like that's obviously what he sees as being possibly the next big thing and, and so far that hasn't happened uh, but you know it's it, he clearly sees it as a, a very very long-term bet and it could very well be that within 10 years that that bet has paid off ai obviously also a big thing which meta has got into you know impressively very quickly so i think this is a company that's been on top for a long time but it's very good at not acting like an incumbent it's very good at kind of mimicking its rivals and also just buying them sometimes instagram whatsapp i mean it's harder for it to do that now i I think probably antitrust regulators are looking at it much more carefully now but it's over the years it's it's done a very impressive job of of kind of eating up or or copying anything that comes near it and it's it's dealing with the tiktok threat pretty well so far i i think they're worried about losing the youngest users in, in the most developed markets but i mean they say time spent on Instagram has risen by something like 40% since they introduced Reels, which is the, the TikTok clone. So they're doing a pretty impressive job still, I think, even even 20 years on. So, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's impressive. And I think that's uh, in the early days, 
of Facebook. It was quite famous that Mark Zuckerberg and his coders would go online and commit code into the repository every few hours when it would take months in a company like Microsoft because, right. you know, to, to introduce new features, etc. But that didn't change because Facebook was born before mobile phones became this big thing, before iPhone was introduced. And it took them a while to ditch the web-based computer language called PHP, which gave them the luxury to, you know, quickly dish out bug fixes and then automatically your Facebook would look fine. But then when it came to Apple, you couldn't release products because Apple would take a week to review and so the right. customers would have those face palm moments that's such a big organization but then they switched they figured that you know mobile is the next big thing so in in that sense they were you know fast relatively to make some changes uh, instead of being a stodgy old organization in the internet age as you said 20 years is a lot that's interesting the, the mobile thing is is something that people often talk about as, as being a moment that was um, important for Mark Zuckerberg because he as, as you say they pivoted to mobile in the end but they were slower than some to get there and a lot of people wonder if that's partly what's driving this uh, metaverse headset project of his because meta is very early to the headset business in some ways you know this is still a product that is by no means as ubiquitous as a smartphone and it isn't going to be for a very long time and yet they're really trying to push it and some people wonder if the experience of being a little bit late to the party with the mobile phone and, you know, the experience of having to be the kind of tenant to Apple's landlord, you know, has um, persuaded Zuckerberg that with the next big platform, if that's headsets, which many people think it could be, they want to be, you know, better to be too early than too late, perhaps. But at the moment, it looks to me as if they are a bit too early, perhaps. But I think the experience of being a, a little late to mobile probably may, may have informed some of the strategy here, I, I wonder. And, and he said, I think in the, about AI that you touched upon in 2013, he said, and I quote, these are his exact words, we think AI is going to play a super important role. That was back in the day and today, and you've written a cover on how AI is helping a new star, isn't it? Meaning how it's transforming various industries, including the superstars uh, as well, where you could, you know, morph their faces in and you don't have to worry about age anymore. So it's it's quite, uh, you know, magical. In, in fact, even journalism, I think, uh, uh, you've done a piece on how AI is transforming journalism itself uh, in in a I, good or bad way. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's going to transform everything, isn't it? Including yeah. including our business. But yeah, no, I, I, definitely with, with journalism. I mean, things like, you know, this podcast, it, it, doing an auto translation of this into 100 languages is the kind of thing that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. And, and these days, yeah. that's already happening on, on some platforms. And so, yeah, I, I think AI is, is going to yeah. tear through almost everything really, probably including including our own business. There will not be any substitute to reporting, on-ground reporting, but uh, you write, uh, I, I think you wrote this, didn't you, where there's a Norwegian media firm uh, which uh, launched an AI tool which could convert these long articles into shorts. So if you have to write an, a short article, so you, you don't need a human being. So it has the content, it has the reporting, it'll try and dish different types of content for different uh, consumption your newsletter exactly. uh, which is it's, uh, it's really interesting isn't it and, and that's i mean you know people people who haven't worked in journalism may not be aware of how much of journalism is is a bit like that you know newspapers will often have a long feature which will be several thousand words and then they'll do a kind of a short news version of the same thing maybe then they'll turn it into a podcast with yeah. a script based loosely on the story Maybe they'll have The Economist, we have a feature called The Economist Explains, where we sometimes those explainers will be based on a longer story. And so yeah. you can imagine an AI um, 
you know, I, I don't know what the word is, but, you know, a kind of assistant, if you like, which could do some of those jobs for you and, you know, creating yeah. social media copy out of stories, that kind of thing. I mean, we're the economists, we're not doing that yet, and, and perhaps we never will, but you can certainly see how that could work. And as you say, there are some outlets very much doing that already. Yeah. And even in podcasting, just two nights ago, I discovered this and maybe I'm late to the party already, is that once you record this, we are recording this podcast, there is a service where you can subscribe to $12 a month. You upload the podcast, it will transcribe it in real time. And all you need to do is edit the document as if it's a Word doc and the audio gets edited automatically and it will remove all our ahs and oohs uh, in one or two clicks. And, wow. and I, I didn't know it existed. I, and it's been around for five months, apparently, from what the YouTube reviews are. And even the video edit uh, is quite seamless. Uh, so I tried amazing. that just last night and it just yeah. edits seamlessly. So you don't well, see those jerks and it's amazing. I mean, yeah, that's that's AI. <laughs> well, I, I look forward to seeing the seamlessly edited version of this podcast. <laughs> in that case. That, that's incredible, isn't it? And the, yeah. I mean, you know, to, to some some journalists that's a, a worry because mm. a lot of people might think well that's my job you know and i've asked publishers about this and their usual response is well we hope that it will free up our employees to do more interesting work you know yeah. rather than painstakingly editing the audio which maybe isn't very interesting and maybe it will free you to do more research or record more podcasts or, or whatever yeah but it's uh, that kind of thing is going to be pretty disruptive in, in just the same way that a few decades ago the transition from hot metal press to, to word processing was was an yeah. earthquake. You know, I think we're probably heading for yes. something similar. Yeah, I still remember I was in 98, a friend, we had to, you know, file in a college project and that was the first time we were using Word and one of my friends told me, hey, do you know, it tells you if your spelling is incorrect, it'll show you that red squiggly line below it. And that was fascinating that, hey, it understands if you made a spelling error and, and <laughs> that was yeah. just 20 years ago. It's amazing. And it does. It, yeah. I think the kind of skills required in journalism are probably going to change a little bit as well. You know, the I mean, spelling is one, one example. I, I was at a journalism conference the other day and quite, quite a senior journalist said that she had entirely forgotten how to spell because she no longer needs to, you know, yeah. <laughs> no longer yeah. needs to. I wonder if the next kind of hmm. re, sort of re, rebalancing of what skills are required could, I, I can imagine there could be a, a leaning more towards reporting and somewhat away from writing. You know, if you've got mm. these chatbots that can write in a plausibly fluent way, but can't really do original reporting, you know, it's quite hard for them to go and interview someone or, or go yeah. go to a place where a thing is happening. So I can imagine that the journalists of, of the future might be hired more for their reporting ability and less for their writing ability, perhaps, yeah. than they have been until now. Just because chatbots for now are... are fairly decent writers and, and terrible reporters. <laughs> yes, and so, that's yeah. important because uh, New York Times ran an article about suddenly uh, books on Amazon, the day after popular figures would die, would spring up. And wow. that were yeah. all written by bots. And one of the relatives of the person who had died said, hey, uh, none of this really happened. And this is just made up. Uh, really? And so, yeah, this so th these are these insidious uh, after effects of uh, AI and everybody's grappling with it. And so much so that I think laws also tend to follow technology. And uh, sometimes it can be like, for example, the questions that the senators 
ask the TikTok founder or even Mark Zuckerberg who was testifying. Uh, I, they find it hard to grapple around what's happening. The, one of them actually had asked uh, Zuckerberg, uh, how do you make money? Because they didn't know how, how, how is it that you make money? You don't charge your users. Mm. He said, Senator, we run ads. And yeah. <laughs> Facebook employees uh, ended up making some t-shirts with that slogan on because right. that, was, that was as funny as that. So it, it's too much is happening and the regulation is far from catching up. They're still trying to wrap their brains around uh, this, I guess, right? Because it's it's not caught up, caught on yet. I think that's right. And I, I think that's kind of always been the story of technology up to a point. We saw similar things years ago when um, Google got into hot water over copyright when it did things like Google Books and mm. Google Image Search as well. Again, now we, we think of it as completely normal, but the idea that Google could lift images from other people's websites and reproduce them on their own website in thumbnail format and then sell ads against them was something that people complained yeah. about. And there was, I think it, it went to court. The judgment in the end was that this was a kind of, I forget the legal language, but the gist of it was that Google was providing a sufficiently new useful service rather than just regurgitating stuff that was out there. Yeah. You know, because the search function was, was genuinely a new useful thing. Right. But they were allowed to do that. And we're seeing very, very similar cases now with generative AI where people like, I think authors like John Grisham and uh, the guy who wrote Game of Thrones, I forget his name, but you know, mm. there, there are various people like this suing over their work being kind of ingested <laughs> by these, right. these language models. And it is amazing, you know, I, I asked one of these, I think it was ChatGPT, I asked it to write, a, you know, the next chapter of a, a new John Grisham novel. And it, it came up with something that was fairly yeah. plausible, probably yeah. not quite as good as the real thing, but maybe, you know, 80% as good as the real thing and, and completely free and, you know, endless mm. and personalizable. And so I can see why why people are concerned about their copyrights. But I, I think these things will get resolved in the end. But it's, as you say, it will take the courts a, a while to catch up with the tech as is so. Did you happen to watch uh, OpenAI's uh, Sam Altman? He recently released what is called Sora. I don't know if you say Sora or is it S-O-R-A, which is a model uh, you just have to type a few sentences or lines describing something and it will create a video out of it. And those videos are, it feels like they are real with human right. beings. So it could be uh, a Chinese uh, person, a lady in her 20s wearing chick clothes, walking uh, in the night when it's raining with neon lights around. And it looked real when uh, you saw that uh, video. And it's it's still not out for everyone. It's mm. just being given to a few influencers, I guess. And it's now uh, trending on Twitter. But it is scary. So it, it's, it's going to change, let's say, stock photography. You don't, you don't, yeah. you just have to subscribe to this uh, service and uh, like on this podcast, you could just insert some, you know, yeah. images or videos. It is incredible. I think you're right. Video is going to be the next big thing. I mean, we've all seen AI generated images on things like Mid Journey and, yeah. you know, Dali and, and all of these. But I think, you know, if computers can do that now with images, then it won't be long until they can do it with video as well. And as, as you say, people are already experimenting with that. So, yeah, I do, I do wonder where it will go next. You know, I sometimes write about Hollywood and one of the possible kind of futures that people imagine is a world where movies are kind of personalized in, in future. So in the same way that you can currently get ChatGPT to write you a, a book about, you know, a, a John Grisham novel starring yourself, mm. you soon you may be able to get a, you know, two hour feature film starring yourself, you know, as, as the new James Bond or, or whatever it might be. <laughs> so yeah, this, this, a world of kind of infinitely customizable 
media in all formats is is what some people envisage. I, I don't know when we'll get there, but probably sooner than we expect. Yes, and when we get there, we look forward to reading it in the Economist. Thank you very much, Tom. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Really.